Today we're continuing our look in Proverbs chapter 29, but we're only going to be looking at one verse today, which probably seems strange. How could you build a sermon off of one verse? Believe me, it can be done. I'm not saying it can be done well, but it can be done, right? So we're going to be looking primarily at Proverbs 29, verse 25, and we're going to kind of segue from there into four different sections of Scripture in the New Testament that amplify what we're reading in Proverbs 29, 25. But in Proverbs 29, verse 25, it shows us or invites us to ask the question, how can we resist living in the fear of man? So I just want that question kind of permeating our thoughts this morning. How can you resist living in the fear of man? Let me read for us what Proverbs 29, 25 says. It says, The fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. I'm going to read it one more time. It says, The fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you so much for the opportunity to be able to look at your word together this morning as we start off a new week. And we pray, Lord, that you'd give us your wisdom. We pray that you'd give us your insight and that you'd help us to understand this portion of Scripture and the related portions of Scripture that go with it so that ultimately we would resist falling into the trap or the snare of the fear of man. And that's something, Lord, that I think we've probably all wrestled with to one degree or another. And it's certainly something that humanity in general wrestles with and has wrestled with from our earliest days. So, Lord, we pray that you give us your wisdom and your insight as we look at this portion of Scripture together today. And by your grace, we pray that our faith will grow as we spend time together in your Word. And we thank you for all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So our family has some strange habits that, if I'm honest, I don't really find strange at all. Uh, They're just kind of things that we enjoy doing and we think, you know, kind of makes some sense. And in fact, some of those habits involve some behaviors that I would heartily endorse or heartily recommend to others if you felt like being at least a little bit counter-cultural. But one of those counter-cultural habits isn't something that I think rises to the level of being a major thing, but it's certainly something that we as a family valued. And, uh, and, And it really came down to how we behave in restaurants. So do you have kind of a code of ethics for your family and how you behave when you're actually visiting a restaurant, going out to eat? Um, anyone who knows me well knows that, that uh, when I was growing up, my father owned a grocery store. Uh, but some people don't know that for a brief season of time, he also owned and, and he owned and ran a restaurant. And he did both at the same time. And I remember sometimes I would spend all morning working at the grocery store and then all evening working at the restaurant, particularly on Saturdays. And uh, so I've developed over time a great appreciation for those who work in the business of either selling food or preparing food. Um, if, if that's your line of work, I genuinely appreciate you. And I have to tell you this, when, my, when the Lord blessed my wife and I with four children, those children were born in close proximity to each other. So the four of them were, we had four children under age six. So that's pretty close, right? You know, they were ages six, four, two, and, 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 a, and zero. You know, that, that, that was it. And I remember Andrea and I talking about the fact that we didn't want to pause our life for an extended period of time and not have the opportunity to do some of the things that we enjoyed doing just because we had little kids. So we thought, there's got to be a better solution than just pausing everything. And so we thought, all right, well, we would like to still be able to go 
to restaurants. But anyone with little children knows that that can be a challenge because sometimes little children are predictable or unpredictable, I should say. And, and so we didn't, um, we didn't know if this would work out perfectly, and it certainly didn't work out perfectly. But we came up with some ideas that we decided to work as a tag team to insist on, and it gave us better odds of having a good restaurant experience. And one of the things that we insisted was that the children mind their behavior, but we gave them some positive reward for this. So we had some positive reinforcement for this. And I would tell them before we would go into the restaurant, I would say, all right, here's the deal. If someone we don't know, so this can't be someone we know. If we run into someone we know, this doesn't apply. But if either our server or someone we don't know comes up to our table and compliments your behavior, you also get dessert. That was our family rule. And, uh, and I said, and if nobody comes up and compliments your behavior, then, then no dessert. And, um, and so we would share that. And, I, and typically, and I would notice this, and maybe those of you with several children have seen this as well, when you walk into a restaurant and you've got four little children, you know that everybody's looking thinking, please don't seat them next to us, right? <laughs> please not near us, not near us. And so if they would exceed people's expectations for their age bracket, uh, typically they would end up getting a compliment, and more often than not, I would have to buy them dessert. But I enjoyed doing it. It was was a lot of fun. Um, But another thing we insisted on from an early age, and you'll see in a second how this ties in to what we're looking at today from Proverbs 29, we insisted from an early age that once they were able to do so, that they ordered their own food and requested their own refills. You got to order your own food and request your own refills. Now, I do remember a time or two when some of them would be like, oh, I don't want to have to ask. I don't want to have to ask. It's like, boy, you're going to be so thirsty. You're going to be, man, it's just going to be, you're just going to wither away, you know? And uh, we, di- we didn't bend on it. It's like, if you want a refill, all you have to say is, excuse me, may I have a refill, please? And wait and see, you'll end up with a refill. So we insisted that they, did, that they do that because typically, and those, again, those of you with young children know that children, that's a scary thing for a child, right? That's not an easy thing for a child to do, to get over their fear of actually having a conversation with adults or to get over their fear of maintaining eye contact with adults. We know that that's a challenge for young people. But here's the thing, it's not just children that have that struggle. It's not just children who actually fear interacting with others. Adults fear that as well. In fact, that's what Solomon was referencing when we look at uh, Proverbs 29:25. He talks about the fear of man. One of the major struggles that we as human beings that we wrestle with is our fear of the opinions and the attitudes of other people. We actually fear that. And in some respects, I think some people fear that more than they fear anything else. Now, this isn't the only time in Scripture that this concept challenging us not to live in the fear of man, it's not the only time this comes up. This comes up multiple times, but I did want to highlight it today as we look at this. And in fact, I think some people might even spend the majority of their lives elevating the opinions of others over the decrees of God because they fear man. I think that's presently what most people on this planet are actively doing. So how can we go about our lives not being paralyzed by the fear of man? What does Scripture tell us in relation to that? What, you know, what principles does Scripture demonstrate that could actually fill our minds with a different perspective and actually help us defeat an unhealthy fear of others? And how can we live out Solomon's teaching that he says here, that the fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord 
is safe? How can we live that out? Well, I want to show us four things, actually, that the Apostle Paul shared. He shared all four of these in the New Testament that amplify what Solomon said in Proverbs 29, 25. And the first is this, realize that there is no such thing as celebrity. Now, what do I mean by that? What do I mean when I say there's no such thing as celebrity? Well, let me show you for a, a quick second a portion of Scripture from 1 Corinthians chapter 3, starting with verse 18. And in that passage of Scripture, this is one of the four things that Paul teaches us in the New Testament related to this, but we'll find this, 1 Corinthians three eighteen, and the verses following say this, "'Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he, might, that he may become wise.'" For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. So let no one boast in men. Now, let me pause there and just say this. The Apostle Paul was somebody who understood what it was like to walk by faith. And when you look at what the New Testament reveals to us about his actions and his activities, he bravely went into many cities, he bravely went into many towns during the first century to preach the gospel, to disciple new believers, to plant churches, and to raise up leaders. That's the pattern that the Apostle Paul demonstrated in the New Testament. And I think we could all agree that that was not an easy task. That that wasn't something simple for him to do. And even he admitted that there were times when he experienced a lot of nervousness. He was nervous from time to time when he was doing that, specifically when he was speaking in front of certain crowds. But one of the crowds that he admits that he was nervous to actually speak to happened to be the church that met in the city of Corinth. There was something about that church that made Paul a little bit nervous to have to speak to them. Now, even before we we go into a little bit more detail about this, can I just toss something out there if you're ever in a spot where you have to give a speech or speak publicly? Um, By the way, do you you ever feel nervous when you're speaking in front of a group? When you say most people, the answer would be yes. Um, It it typically tends to be the type of thing that I think most of us find a little bit nerve-wracking. And I'll I'll admit, even though I find myself speaking in front of groups frequently, it usually takes me a few minutes of being nervous, and then once you get into it a little bit, you're a little bit less nervous. But I tend to feel nervous from time to time when I'm speaking in front of groups, just depending on the context. Well, here's what I learned over time actually helps me if I'm speaking in front of, of a group. And maybe it'll help you as well. I certainly hope it does. If you want to overcome your nervousness when you're speaking in front of people, start measuring the success of whatever you're presenting by whether or not you're helping people, not uh, whether or not they praise you for looking good in how you presented it. And do you see the distinction between that? If your focus is, you know, if you're saying, all right, was that a successful speech or talk or sermon? The answer is, well, did it help people? If it helped people, then sure. But if the metric was, did you look good doing it, well, then you're going to be nervous the whole time because your whole focus the whole time, instead of helping people, is going to be how you look while you're trying to help people. And there's a big difference between the two. So focus on helping people. Don't overly focus on how you look doing it. But when you look at the Apostle Paul and what he was doing, one of the reasons he had a difficult time speaking to the Corinthians was apparently that church had a chip on its shoulder. And there's a lot of challenging things that he says to that church. I remember when uh, a friend of mine was describing the church he grew up in. 
This is when I was in high school. I said, what's, that, what's your home church like? And he said, this is what he said, it's a real Corinthian church. It's a real, and I said, wait a second, you're describing your home church as a real Corinthian church? And he said, oh yeah, it's got all the problems that you see the church in Corinth having in the New Testament. That's what my home church is like. It's a real Corinthian church. That's what he said. Uh, But there are times when, you know, I, I think I get the impression that the Apostle Paul, when he spoke to that group, I don't know that he was necessarily speaking to a lot of smiling faces. I kind of get the impression that at times as he would speak to that group, he was speaking to people maybe with their arms crossed and their chins up. I have the opportunity with a mission board that I'm, I'm part of leading to actually speak in a variety of churches. Just a couple weeks ago, I was speaking in a variety of churches out in Wisconsin. And then throughout the course of the year, I present mission work in, specifically related to church planting in a variety of churches. And I have to tell you, some churches embrace you with open arms and smiles on their faces. And other churches kind of look at you how I envision the Corinthian church looking at the Apostle Paul with their arms folded and their chins up. And there's a very different or very big difference between both of those postures. And the church at Corinth was was displaying such an attitude about itself, such a a stuck-upness, I think we could say, that it was causing great division in the Corinthian church. People were kind of separating themselves based on social class or based on income or different things that we would say that's a worldly metric. But that was a real issue within the Corinthian church. And so Paul confronted the problem when he wrote to them, and he was doing that here in the portion of Scripture that we just read from 1 Corinthians 3. And he basically told those who thought that they were wiser than others to humble themselves, saying, humble yourself so that your pride doesn't rob you of the opportunity to learn godly wisdom. So your pride doesn't get in the way of you actually being able to hear godly wisdom as it's shared and then absorb it into your life as it's being proclaimed. And then Paul also contrasted the wisdom of this world with the wisdom of God. And he reminded the church that the wisdom of this world is foolishness and will come to nothing. But if we persist, and hear me on this, if we persist in idolizing the wisdom of this world, We'll do something that directly relates to this concept of the fear of man. If we idolize this world's wisdom, we'll also start to idolize those who dispense this world's wisdom. If you idolize the wisdom of this world, you will, you will idolize those who share the wisdom of this world. That, that's how celebrity culture develops. It's how celebrity culture actually comes to be. And that's a big problem right now. And in fact, I think people from all age brackets are currently being influenced to to make ungodly decisions or ungodly choices based on something that they first saw or, you know, experienced as it was being modeled by somebody with a little bit of celebrity. And I think sometimes we're more easily influenced by that than we probably would want to admit to ourselves. And I had an interesting experience related to that the other day when I was out for pizza with my daughter, Julia. At, at the, just kind of the spur of the moment, I, I said to her, I said, hey, would you like to uh, grab some pizza? I had a little time the other day, and uh, she had a little time the other day. I said, do you want to just go grab some pizza? I don't know. Do you ever eat at Jules Thin Crust over in Newtown? Anyone ever go there? They have some creative pizzas, and I know that she really likes it as well. And, uh, and she said, oh, yeah, I'd love to go there. I was like, all right, let's go over there, and let's grab some uh, Thin Crust pizza. Let's see what they have. So we went over there, and we, we got a few slices. And it was really good, but right when we pulled up, my phone lit up. And my phone lit up with a message 
letting me know that a well-known celebrity, I'm not going to tell you who it is yet, uh, but a well-known celebrity had just offered themselves to make two appearances on one of my podcasts. And I thought, sweet, this is somebody that I was trying to get on the show. And then Julia saw the name and she said, all right, dad, be honest. She said, are you going to be nervous about interviewing her? Be honest. And I said, I don't think so. And I said, I used to get nervous when I would do these interviews and when I, when I would aim high and try and invite people on the show that had some name recognition. But here's what I've discovered after several months of doing these interviews. I've come to realize there is no such thing as celebrity. There's no such thing. They're just people. And people do and say people things. And uh, some share helpful information and some just want attention. And so the ones that just want attention, I try not to invite on the show. And those that share helpful things, that's who I want to talk to and learn from and share with others. And she thought that that made a lot of sense. But I want to tie that back to what the Apostle Paul said here, because how are we carrying ourselves? Now, when you look at the Corinthian church, don't you kind of get the impression that some, some of the people in that church were trying to carry themselves almost with an attitude or a mindset that they, that they were a celebrity or that they were above other people? That's the vibe that church was giving off. So are we trying to be celebrities in any area of our lives? Or are we willing to demonstrate a humble servant's heart like Jesus Christ? Because there's a big difference between the two. Are we idolizing celebrities or are we willing to say Christ is the one that I trust? Because the person you trust is the one you're going to listen to. And the one you listen to is the one who's going to have an impact on your life. And that's going to come out in one way or another. And so I think one of the things we need to do is kind of put everybody on the same playing field and realize there's no such thing as celebrity. There's no such thing. It's made up in our mind. People are just people. There's God, and then there's people. And we're all on the same playing field. And if we can stop idolizing certain people and putting them above others, I think that helps us as we wrestle with the fear of man. I think it helps us to overcome the fear of man. But there's other things Paul said related to this that I think are useful to recognize. Another thing he said is that basically we need to understand who we really answer to. Look at what he says in Romans chapter 14. I'm going to read from verse 10 down to verse 12. And in Romans 14, when Paul was kind of conveying this idea of of understanding who you really answer to, he said it this way. He said, why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Again, I love that line. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Have you ever struggled with something like writer's block? Do you ever have to write something and then you just kind of get writer's block? I know some of you, you know, some of you that are um, uh, in the midst of of, uh, college right now, you, you have to write a lot of papers. Those of you earning your bachelor's degrees, those of you earning your master's degrees, I know some of you uh, write books. I know some of you write different articles. Some of you host blogs, different things. Um, I'm starting to realize that there's a very good way to overcome writer's block for me. So I'll share this. This This is a bonus tip. You ready? 
The best way for me to overcome writer's block, and maybe it'll help you as well, the best way is to have a deadline. A deadline. It's just amazing to me that when I'm accountable to somebody, or when I'm accountable to a deadline, when I'm given a deadline to turn something in, my brain starts to get in gear the closer I get to that date. Do you ever find that happen? When you have no choice but to actually get it done, right? Well, I think it's healthy just in general, in all areas of our lives, for us to live with a sense of accountability. And those who attempt to live their lives without it are basically setting themselves up for terrible failure and unnecessary regret. And I think families, we can keep each other accountable. I think spouses can do that as well. I think employers and church leaders and our brothers and sisters in Christ can all keep each other accountable. Um, But there is no greater form of accountability than the realization that we are all going to stand before the Lord someday and give an account for our lives. There's no greater form of accountability than that. And Scripture teaches us that the day is actually coming when we're going to stand before the judgment seat of God. Scripture reveals to us that every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord and we will all give an account of our lives to God Himself. And there's nothing that we'll be able to hold back, and everything's going to be laid bare. We're all going to be held accountable for everything we've ever thought, said, or did. It's all going to be exposed, and the only option we will have is to fall on the mercy and the grace of Jesus Christ. And we can rejoice in the fact that there is no condemnation in store for those who are in Christ Jesus. Even when we think about accountability to the Lord, we also know that that accountability doesn't turn into condemnation when we are in Christ, because Christ already took our condemnation upon Himself. But I think that that's a helpful thing for us to recognize if we're wrestling with the fear of man. If that fear is holding us back from doing what God has actually called us to do, It's time to give that fear over to Him, and it's time to recognize that the Lord is the one we will ultimately be accountable to. And that's what the Apostle Paul referenced in the book of Romans, but that's something that we should embrace as well. But he goes on in the book of Galatians chapter 1 to share something else that I think can help us overcome the fear of man, and that's this, desire integrity more than you desire praise. And you can see how each of these connect with one another and maybe even build on one another. But in Galatians 1.10, he makes something. And as I read this, after I read this, I'm going to share a little bit of background on what was taking place here. But in Galatians 1.10, he says, For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ what Paul says in Galatians 1.10. So he's trying to challenge himself and the church to not live for the approval of man or not try to live to please man, but basically live to be a servant of Christ, live to be someone who pleases God. Now, we can learn a lot from the people who have come before us. The Lord's graciously raised up a whole host of people who have demonstrated what it looks like to live out our faith in this world. And he also uses such people, like the Apostle Paul, like I see him using him in this passage of Scripture, to demonstrate what it actually looks like to confront other people with the truth. And if you read the early verses of Galatians chapter 1, so if you read from maybe verse 4 down to verse 9, you actually have Paul confronting the church about a very specific issue. The church had been drifting from the truth and drifting from the centrality of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And instead of emphasizing the grace of God that's shown to us in Jesus Christ, 
What you had was you had some of the leaders in the church at Galatia, they were starting to to teach people that salvation could be obtained by strict observance to Old Testament law. Even though the gospel teaches us that salvation is by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, you actually had people in that church who were attempting to please those who believed differently by watering down the truth of the gospel and making the gospel more about the work of a man than the work that Christ has accomplished on our behalf. So they were basically teaching, uh, teaching people that, that salvation could be earned through your effort, more so than teaching people to trust Jesus who had earned salvation for us, who, who had secured salvation for us, and gives it to us as a gift. And so that was an issue in the church, and so this news reached the Apostle Paul's ears. And he could have responded in multiple ways. He could have just treated it like it was no big deal and, and maybe tried not to upset the church by addressing it. But what he did was he decided, I'm not going to mince words. And so he confronted it without mincing words. He was very direct in how he confronted it. And he also made a point to express the fact that he valued service to Christ more than he valued pleasing people. That's a challenging spot for our minds to get to, don't you think? to value serving Christ more than we value people-pleasing, right? Because he knew his words were going to irritate the Galatians. But he said them anyway because his words were true. And he kind of needed to shock them back into an understanding of the gospel and, and why it was perilous that they were doing what they were doing. Paul desired integrity more than he desired human praise. And I think that's a principle we need to understand as well. If we're going to resist being governed by the fear of man. But there's one other thing I want to show us this morning, and that's from the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, starting with verse 16, it shows us, and and I'll even say this at the outset, I don't know if initially you will see what I'm getting at when I point this out and say that this has a connection to the fear of man, the concept of living in the fear of man, but it definitely does. And one of the things that we're challenged in 2 Corinthians 4, 16 and following, we're challenged to do is this, remind yourself that earthly trouble cannot compete with eternal blessings. Now, how does that, how does that relate to this concept of the fear of man? Well, let me read these verses from 2 Corinthians 4, starting with verse 16, and I'll read down to verse 18, but it says, so we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. Now, keep, that, keep those verses in your mind for just a moment. Let me ask this. Have you ever received an injury that seemed to take a very long time to heal or, you know, maybe you contracted an illness that seemed, it, it took a very long time for your body to recover from. I was talking to a friend of mine this past week who uh, was renovating his kitchen, and he injured his shoulder in doing so. And uh, he said the pain was so excruciating that for two months he did not get a good night's sleep, and he still has numbness in his fingers related to it. And he finds himself saying, is this ever going to end? Now, with that in mind, have you ever had a season where you've had conflict with someone in your family that seemed to stretch on for a very, very long period of time? And you started to say to yourself, all right, is this ever going to end? Is this ever going to quit? Is this something I'm going to have to endure forever? 
You know, sometimes the pain we experience, whether it be relational pain, emotional pain, physical pain, it can, it can linger for a long time. And when, we, when it tends to hold on for a while, I think sometimes it can feel rather easy to lose heart. That's what Paul was addressing in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. He was encouraging us, don't lose heart, even though you might experience a season of affliction. The Lord reminds us we don't need to lose heart. There is a better option. So as men and women who have experienced the gift of salvation through faith in Jesus Christ, we can be confident that every single one of our earthly struggles is ultimately going to be something that results in a positive outcome. Because the Lord's promised that He's not going to waste any of our experiences. There's going to be a positive outcome that comes from every pain and every struggle you as a believer in Jesus Christ have ever had to endure. And one of the things that those pains or those struggles are actually providing for us is an opportunity for us to contrast our earthly lives with the glorious future that the Lord holds in store for us. Paul here tells us it doesn't compare, right? It doesn't compare. The things of this earth do not compare to the good things that the Lord has in store for those who know Him. Our present troubles will begin to feel light and momentary if we allow our hearts to begin contemplating the blessing of being with Jesus for all eternity. Our present struggles, which matter, but again, from the perspective of eternity, they can begin to start to feel light and momentary. We don't need to keep our eyes focused on the things that are seen. We can keep our hearts, our, our hearts aimed toward the, the abundant eternal life that the Lord has secured for us through His Son, Jesus Christ. And I think that perspective is very helpful to keep in mind when we're wrestling with the fear of man. And what I mean by that is this. I think at times there may be difficult consequences that we experience when we refuse to submit ourselves to the snares of earthly values and earthly opinions. But God's Word reminds us that our earthly troubles cannot compete with eternal blessings. And so, this is really what it comes down to. And I want you to just think about this for just a moment. How prepared do you feel to make a stand for your faith in Jesus Christ in the midst of a fallen world that doesn't share your worldview, that doesn't share your opinion, and doesn't approach things the way you approach things or value things the way you value things. This world tends to get all wrapped up in the moment and doesn't think about things from an eternal perspective. And so how prepared do you feel to make a stand for your faith in Christ in the midst of a world that's not going to encourage you to do so? Does the fear of man ever keep you from expressing your faith in Christ openly? You know, do you ever hesitate from expressing your faith in Christ because you're fearful that there's going to be some earthly consequence that comes to you for expressing your faith in Christ? Or how about this? Has the Lord ever called you to take your life in a healthy direction, a new direction in some way, but the only, the only thing holding you back was the fear of what other people might think? I remember uh, next month will be 13 years since our family began the process of planting the church here. And I remember 13 years ago, uh, as the previous church that was meeting here was, was winding down, and our family really felt like it was our calling to come and, and replant a church here. I remember sharing that with people where we presently lived, and some of the responses I got were favorable, but some people were like, why would you do that? 
Why would you uproot your family? Why would you leave all these things that are familiar? Things are fine for you here. Like, why would you leave a context where everything's fine and then move your family a couple hours south and begin to work on something that you don't know whether or not it's actually going to click or whether or not it's actually going to work? Why would you do that? And I remember hearing some of that, that feedback and some people just kind of scratching their head. It was like, you're all set here. Why would you uproot everything and do that? And the only answer I could give was I couldn't shake the fact that that's what the Lord was calling us to do. And my wife was very much in agreement. And thankfully, our children were, was, were very much in agreement. But that was definitely a moment where that got tested for me, where it was like, okay, I can listen to the opinions of others that I think are primarily based on worldly metrics or I can step out on faith and do what the Lord's calling me to do, and we wouldn't be having that conversation or this conversation right now if we had chosen to listen to ungodly counsel, if we had chosen not to step out on faith and do what the Lord was calling us to do. And so I'm just kind of throwing that out there for you to wrestle with as well, because it's something I always have to wrestle with. Is the Lord calling you to do something, but the only thing holding you back from doing it is your fear of what people might say if you do it, even though deep down you know in your heart it's something that the Lord's impressing upon you to do, or an area of obedience that He's impressing upon your heart to obey Him in and to trust Him for? Most people spend the majority of their years living under the fear of man, so much so that they fail to take action on God's calling on their lives. They would rather spend their decades on this earth fearing the opinions of others instead of moving in the direction that God is nudging them to go. So as we finish up this morning, I just want to challenge you with something. Don't make that mistake. That's what most of this world is doing. Don't make that mistake. If you're in the hearing of this teaching this morning, don't make that mistake. Submit your heart to Jesus Christ and don't be paralyzed by the values and the opinions of this fallen world. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your word and for the privilege that it is to be able to look at it together today and to to really think about the things that you bring out to us in your word as we think about what does it mean to wrestle with with the fear of man? What does it mean for us to to, um, really go about our lives in such a way that we're listening to your voice over the voices of our culture and over the voices of uh, just so many opinions that are, are cast in our direction. Lord, we know that it can be very easy in this world for people to idolize the opinions of others, and, and we see this whole celebrity culture developing related to the fact that that we've learned to live in the fear of man instead of valuing what you actually proclaim and teach. And so, Lord, we pray that we would value you first. We pray that we would put you first in all matters and in all areas of our lives. And we pray that we would walk with you faithfully day in and day out. We're just grateful, Lord, for your goodness. We're grateful for the privilege to be able to put you first in all areas. We're grateful for the fact that, that you're, you're teaching us in your word to value your opinion above the opinions of this world. And we pray that that would be something that our lives would demonstrate matters to us as well. Thank you, Lord, for your love. Thank you for your guidance. And thank you for these reminders from Scripture today. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.